0: Good morning. morning. Let's begin class for prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to come together again and study and share, and we ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten our minds, draw us together in the bonds of love, and help dispel from our minds any distortions that keep us from knowing you and your purposes for our lives. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 11 in the quarterly, um, the role of the church in the community, and the title is, Jesus Bade Them Follow Me, and before we get into the subject, I wanted to Share an email I got yesterday. And this, uh, this email says, dear, dear Dr. Tim, My brother and I were brought up uh, Seventh-day Adventist, legalistic, beat over the head with Ellen White, frightened of God and living in fear. After leaving home and getting married, I left the church, not seeing any way I could work enough to earn my way to heaven, so why beat myself up? Trying. 25 years later, in 1997, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and two years later started attending church again, remembering that they had a health message and for the first time in my life started reading Ellen White and seeing an entirely different picture of God that didn't align with my upbringing. I started searching for God with a new heart. Since 2009, my husband and I have been eating a whole food plant-based diet and my uh, multiple sclerosis has been completely reversed. My last MRI showed no new or recent activity and my doctor couldn't believe it. I have been off all MS meds uh, since October 2011. A few years ago, my brother shared your audio book, The God-Shaped Brain, what an eye-opener. Also shared your Sabbath school lessons and other information with me, and it is completely changing my view of God. For the first time in my life, I'm experiencing a God of love, and for the first time can discuss him with non-Adventists and coworkers and even other struggling church members. After attending church for the... um. Let's see, after attending church for the past 15 years, I was finally re-baptized last year. I have shared your materials with many friends, and recently one of my friends and I started a Monday night Bible study group using your materials as the base. I just can't get enough of him, capital H, uh, speaking of God, and it's because you are sharing your teachings as the creator, designer, God is Love, you of the law. Lately, I've also been transcribing most of your Sabbath school class presentations and sharing them with my friends because there's so much more information in the classes than are in the notes you so kindly provide. My mind doesn't absorb things well, so I need, to in, uh, need the entire transcription to refer back to when I want to review some of the issues that come up in my discussions with others who are struggling with their image of God. When I discovered your Let's Talk article on the difficult questions and Bible answers, I felt almost like it was a gift just for me answers to lots of problematic bible stories i was never able to reconcile with the god of love may god continue to bless and keep you your family and your class including the virtual one as you continue to share uh truth about his character and all the and all those being released from the bondage we're in from uh, looking through the wrong lens view we are very grateful and with a very grateful heart i thank you rita hartman wasn't that nice And so just a reminder to our online class, as she found, we have a lot of resources on our uh, website, so if you have a topic or a subject, go to our website, www.comandreason.com. There's a search little um, function up at the top. Type in your topic, and you will find a whole bunch of of, uh, blogs and other things that address those topics, and you might find something you're looking for there. So back to our lesson, Jesus bade them follow me. What, What do you think of this call? Have you ever kind of try to put yourself in the, in the setting, how it would have potentially been fairly difficult for them. You're at work one day and your job here in Chattanooga, and, and uh, your organization has a visitor coming through and they're walking by your workstation, and the, you look up and the person says, follow me. Do you get up and leave your workstation and follow them? You don't personally know them, but you've heard about the person. The person has some fame. You've maybe watched them on TV or read something on their, on their internet, and, and you know who they are, but they say, follow you. Do, do, you, leave, do you have a wife and kids that need income? Do, do you leave your workstation? Is this kind of close, maybe, to the, the, the question for some of his apostles? Now, Jesus' calling of his disciples wasn't without some preparation. Have you ever considered the preparation that went on before he actually said to them, follow me? And I, I thought of this. I thought the, the different la- levels of preparation. Jesus had been preparing himself his entire life to be the Messiah and to complete his mission and go into his ministry. So he'd been preparing his whole life on earth. He says he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He'd been preparing for this day, Yes? So personally, he'd been preparing. Is that the only preparation? Can you think of any other preparation that had been going on before Jesus said to them, follow me?
1: He said John the Baptist.
0: Excellent. John the Baptist was out there preparing a way, preparing hearts and minds, calling people to repentance, uh, planting seeds of truth, preparing. Absolutely.
2: Somebody mentioned to me one time that if you looked at Isaiah, as a kind of a programming guide for the earth and Jesus given by God so that he could renew his whole life, really, is in Isaiah. So when they went to the synagogue, they would have been hearing about the Messiah and so on. Maybe their hearts were open to that.
0: So another preparation was their worship the whole system of symbols designed to teach things, their personal Bible study, Scripture study, hearing Scripture in, in synagogue, reflecting prayer, their whole personal spiritual journey, that's preparing them as well, isn't it? And then, of course, the Holy Spirit has always been working, preparing receptive hearts. And then somebody mentioned John. If You go to John chapter, John the Baptist, and go to John the Apostle, chapter 1, 35 through 42. He says, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples, and he saw Jesus passing by, and he said, look, the Lamb of God, When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the 10th hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and and tell him, we have found the Messiah, and he brought him to Jesus. So there's that John who was part of the preparing of the way and Andrew was an original disciple of John who John redirected to to Jesus. And so we have all this preparation going on. What about in our lives today? Are we ready for a calling when Jesus would say to us, have we been doing preparatory work Is there preparatory work that needs to happen in our life so we're ready to hear the calling, follow me? Did Jesus say to anybody he approached on the street, follow me? Or were there some he didn't say that to? Because they weren't ready. And even some who came to him and said, what must I do? He told them and they still weren't ready. And some who wanted to follow him, he said, go back home. Yeah, and somebody told him to to go back home. Yeah, I want to. After a miracle, healing, he said, I don't want to follow you. No, go home and tell what the Lord has done. Memory text. But they, the sheep, will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. What do you think this means? They don't recognize a stranger's voice, they don't know him. They don't know him. Does it mean that we will hear the voice of Jesus like you're hearing my voice right now? Is it supposed to mean that? Could it mean that? It could mean that. It's not restricted to an audible voice, right? The the voice of God can speak in more than just an audible voice. But it could be an audible voice. We're not going to eliminate that, but we're not going to restrict it either. Yes?
1: God might use our voices to speak to somebody.
0: So the question is, how do we know or how do we get to know the voice of Jesus so well that we recognize it and are able to distinguish that voice from another voice? How do we do that? Yes, way in the back, somebody online.
2: Uh Keith asked me to read this to you. God would have been could have been working in their hearts to give them a yearning for what only Jesus could offer them.
0: Yes, and that's the, the preparation of the Holy Spirit that we mentioned, working in the hearts beforehand. Absolutely. Yes. So back to the question of the voice. Yes. A
1: personal relationship with Him, knowing the fruits of the Spirit. When God talks to me, <clears throat> I have a peace. I'm not confused. It's not a demanding voice. It's a very loving, quiet voice. If I choose to listen to it, Sometimes he doesn't repeat himself.
0: Okay. Okay. Other thoughts? Scripture
3: tells us to learn by practice. Like where you going with that? And how to discern truth from error. Good. Good. It's again the design law. We have to exert ourselves. We have to exert our uh, intellect to discern truth from lies.
0: Okay. Other
3: thoughts? Yes.
4: Am I going to follow somebody I don't know to go to some place I haven't been before, so I would think familiarity with the voice, whether it be an audible one or one that speaks to you through what you study you've got to put that mechanism together.
0: Okay, so this is an important question, isn't it? Is there only one voice out there, just the voice of, of Christ, and so if you, you can just follow, or are there many voices? I hear the devil a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yes.
5: Many voices. For me, it, it's almost about being in tune because I think the voice is always there, but we are not always in a position, stillness or quiet or disconnecting, you know what I mean? So that you're even in tune or on the same wavelength so that you can hear it. And for me, the three-pronged integrative evidence-based approach that we've taught in this class is huge for trying to discern right from wrong, because, or truth from error, because many times there are elements of both in a concept, you know what I mean? So when you combine scripture and experience and science to determine which ones hold truth, where they all connect, for me, that's been...
0: Very helpful. Visionary. Yeah. So let's see what you think about this quote from Christ Object Lessons. And it's, uh, again, this question. How do we know the voice? Uh, And this is uh, out of uh, Christ's Object Lessons, page 129. See if you see some insights here. Our life is to be bound up with the life of Christ. We are to draw constantly from him, partaking of him, the living bread that came down from heaven, drawing from a fountain ever fresh, ever giving forth its abundant treasures. If we keep the Lord ever before us, pause right here, can anybody name which law Design protocol, not rule, design protocol, is being referenced in this phrase, if we keep the Lord ever before us. Law the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. We, we actually become like what we spend time admiring, esteeming, valuing, uh, reading, watching. We neurobiologically change based on that. So if we keep the Lord ever before us, then we are being changed. by This is a design law protocol. Okay. So if we keep the Lord ever before us, next, next phrase. Allowing our hearts to go out in thanksgiving and praise to him. What design law is being described here? Gratitude. Well, gratitude is, is the experience. But what law is, is in work here? It's the law of exertion. exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. If you want stronger muscles, you've got to exercise it. you want stronger math skills... You've got to practice, you got to work problems. You've got to start music ability, you've got to work your instrument, practice your instrument. If you want a stronger, more appreciative, thankful, deeply loving heart, you have to, what's it say? Allow our hearts to go out in thanksgiving and praise to Him. We must practice the, the praise. We must give our hearts to Him in praise. And the more you do, the, the more appreciation and the deeper your love and thanksgiving grow. Have, have you not experienced that? Yes. This is a design law. First, we must behold Him. And then we must appreciate Him. So you can behold and be disgusted by. Mm-hmm. Weren't some of the Pharisees in Christ's day, hey, they saw Christ and it offended them? They weren't appreciative from it. You see? So beholding is not enough. It's beholding and then appreciating and practicing. Okay. There's
3: some elements of law of freedom and, and law of liberty in it.
0: We're going to come to that one. We shall have a continual freshness in our religious life. Our prayers will take the form of conversation with God as we would talk with a friend. He will speak his mysteries to us personally often there will come to us a sweet, joyful sense of the presence of Jesus. Often our hearts will burn within us as he draws nigh to commune with us as he did with Enoch. When this is, in truth, the experience of the Christian, there is seen in his life a simplicity, a humility, meekness, and lowliness of heart that show to all whom he associates that he has been with Jesus and learned of him. Do you see this process? So how, you talked about speaking his mysteries to us personally. Is there something that happens before we're ready to hear those mysteries? I thought, in, 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 as I was reading this, yeah, there is something. We have to spend time beholding him. And we have to come into real heart appreciation of him. Don't we? Yeah. So, can we hear the voice of Jesus if... I'm going to throw a whole bunch of bullets at you here, bullet points... If we stay high on drugs and alcohol, you may be surprised at that. I have patients who have addiction problems and they pray a lot. Do you think? Now, is it because you, you say no, they can't hear the voice of Jesus, they stay high on drugs and alcohol. Is it because God refuses to speak his voice to them? Or is it because their brains and senses are so anesthetized they can't hear the voice? Yes, a hand.
4: Well, another thing is there's too much other noise.
0: Okay. So can we hear the voice of Jesus if we are so proud and arrogant that we cannot be taught? Did, did, were, there, were there people, examples in Christ's life of people who couldn't hear his voice because they already knew all the answers? Mm-hmm. You ever seen people like this? They've got their box of belief, and it's really it's really a prison of belief. They've got their, their system of beliefs, that they have constructed, and they defend those beliefs, and any new idea is rebuffed and rejected. They can't hear new truth. That's all hand over here. Yes?
2: I was just reading this
5: morning about the time when, when um, the Pharisees and Sadducees got together to decide what they were going to do with Jesus after Lazarus was raised, and it spoke about how they were under a strong impression from the Holy Spirit that they were fighting mm-hmm. against God. They really were hearing the Holy Spirit talk to them, but they were so resistant to, to listening to that because they were concerned with their own well-being and their own position.
0: So they silenced the voice. They
5: silenced it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, how can we, can we hear the voice of Jesus if we have beliefs about God that make us afraid to let him talk to us lest he kill us? Remember the book of Job and Job's friends? I wouldn't let God talk to me unless he killed me. Remember? Can we hear the voice if we have some belief that, that we should live in terror of him? I don't think we can. Uh, if we have beliefs that we need someone to protect us from God. There, this is common Christian belief. If we think we already have the answers and there's no mysteries left to reveal. We are full and rich, we are rich and full of goods. We are in need of nothing. Laodicea. If our minds are filled with entertainment, TV, video games, worldly reading materials, that we fill our minds with this, does, does, that, does that interfere with hearing the voice of Jesus? Does that mean we should cloister ourselves away from the world so that we don't hear anything? That we, we, you remember the Stylites? The, the, you know, back in the, uh, uh, shortly, you know, in the, like the 300 or 400 years after Christ, People were so afraid of becoming worldly, they would build these pillars, and they would put a little house on top of a pillar to get away from the world. They didn't want to be worldly, and they would live in these little houses. And styluses, so stylites. Okay? And they would live up there, so they didn't interact with the world. Is that a way to avoid your mind, uh, to, to disconnect from the world? Yes.
4: I think there's a place for that for a period of time. I and mean, what did Paul do after, you know, to make his paradigm shift?
0: Okay, so you're suggesting like, like Christ would go away from the masses and spend time with his Father, or Paul went away from meditation and prayer, but, but, but for a purpose. Why did they, both of them do that? To They need to get focused. For what purpose were they getting refocused?
4: Well, they were trying to share the gospel, right? So they have to get focused on God, maintain that communication.
0: Yeah, so I think that's a beautiful balance. Yes, there was a place for coming apart, but in their coming apart, they had an understanding that they're going to reengage, And it wasn't staying apart so they wouldn't get contaminated. Self-protection, uh, protect me from sin, <laughs> which is a lot of some of the cloistered type religion that we hear about through the ages. But it was a time for that recharging and refocusing and hearing the mystery spoken, so they had something to share when they reengage. I think that's a great point. Or if we're so busy with life, not entertainment, not videos, not music, not just so busy with life, even church responsibilities. You know, this committee meeting, that committee meeting, this building project, that, uh, what color carpet are we going to get? And and on and on we go. We're just so busy. Remember Martha? She didn't have time to listen. She was too busy. Is that, can we hear if if we're just too busy? What about if we conclude there actually is no God at all, which many people in the world believe today? There's no God. Will they be listening? If we worship a false God and train the mind to listen to a false God voice. Now there are many people who are listening to the, for the voice of God, but they've trained their mind to value and spend time esteeming a distorted picture of God. So, how do we know the voice of Jesus and hear him speak to us? What are the things we can do? i got another bullet list. First, I think we must, first in our own life, recognize our need. We need to hear the voice of Jesus. If we don't recognize our need, well, we, for whatever reason, evolutionary thinking, there's no God, I don't need God, whatever, then we're not going to listen. We, we need to recognize our need. And then we actually must spend time with him, must spend time admiring him, spend time in his word, we must clear the mind of any obstructions to his voice, the noise that someone mentioned. Take time to disconnect as was mentioned, quiet time, reflective time. Study the word, harmonized with science and experience, integrative evidence-based approach, which requires us to meditate on his creation. How many times after you read something do you say, okay, that's a great principle. How can I see this in action in the world around me? How does this apply in real life? Do You connect those dots contemplating his methods and then actually choosing to apply his principles. I can tell you my life one of the big, big freeing principles for me was when I came to understand the law of liberty.
4: Amen. Mm-hmm.
0: I didn't always understand that law because I was raised under a God construct who has rules and if you don't follow the rules then, then justice requires infliction of punishment and so you have, to, you have to coerce people into obedience with threats and I didn't always understand liberty. And so I lived in constant fear and I practiced that. I was intolerant of people who, who I would I would try to persuade them but ultimately if they weren't persuadable then they had to have the boot. Let me that. And this is what the, this is the whole dark ages. burning people to stake. This is the beastly system in the end. And the law of liberty when I finally understood that then I had to actually choose. Wait a second. You know what? I need to leave them free. Leave them free. Leave them free. And I started practicing leaving people free. And it freed me. I was so much more free. Oh, what burdens were off my shoulders. Seriously, have you ever had the burden of trying to carry the weight of convincing somebody else? No. Our job is to really present the truth in love and leave people free. Yes. So I had to practice that. Remove as many distortions as we're capable of from our minds. And, and that was an idea that came to me that, that I realized I'm finite. And I began praying, Lord, help me develop a mind that is a lover of truth, that is, that, that is able to uh, understand, appreciate, and assimilate truth at the earliest possible moment and stop living a life that is inconvenienced by the truth and wants to put it off until I can't put it off anymore and I'm forced by reality to have to deal with it because I used to live that way too. That truth is inconvenient. I don't want to have to process it. I don't want to deal with it. But as I've said before, you can never avoid the truth, you can only delay the day you deal with it. And the longer you delay, the more problems you have when you finally face it. And so I, I, I began to apply that to my life. You know what, I want a I heart, Lord, what's truth and how do I apply it to my life at the earliest moment? Nip it in, the old Barney Pfeiffer rule, nip it in the bud. Nip it, nip it, nip it. <laughs> okay? And then open the heart and invite him in. We actually have to choose to, to invite him into our minds and converse and talk with him. Any other actions that you all can think of that were important in how we come to know the voice of God? Sunday's lesson, second paragraph, it says, It is, of course, important that we know Jesus' voice ourselves before we can help others know it as well. We need divinely given discernment to distinguish between the cunning voice of Satan and Jesus' voice. Indeed, we must never forget the reality of the great controversy in that we have an enemy who works with great stealth to keep people from coming to a saving relationship with Jesus. And they use this phrase, divinely given discernment. What is that? D- discernment, I think we, all just, it's the ability to differentiate between right and wrong, good and bad, healthy and unhealthy. Uh, it's a mind that can tell the difference between a lie and a truth. That's discernment. But how do we get this? Divinely given, does that mean God uses his divine power to impart this ability on some and and not on others? Is that what that means? Russell was referencing Hebrews 5.14 a little while ago. And this is what it says out of the NIV. Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Same verse out of the New King James. But solid food belongs to those who are full, full age, that is, those who by use of reason who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Senses exercised, that's law of exertion stuff. It's law of exertion stuff. See, can you become a concert musician by listening to the stereo eight hours a day? Must you at some point practice? Now, there's a place for listening to other musicians. You can be inspired. You can you can learn techniques by observing. But at some point after that observation and listening, don't you have to put into practice? And practice. And the mature are those who've developed by practice. So it's great to listen to me and to other people. But at some point, you've got to go home and you've got to practice thinking for yourself, coming to your own conclusion, weighing the evidences for yourself. That's what we must do. The
3: law was divinely given.
0: That's right. So what helps a person to discern? There's a I like this quote from Medical Missionary, May 1, 1892. It's 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 a uh, it's a little pithy. All whom God has endowed with reasoning powers may become intellectual Christians. So if if you weren't endowed with reasoning powers, you're excused. <laughs> It's pithy. We're going to get to the rest of the quote, but think that through. Not everyone actually has been endowed with reasoning powers. I had an aunt who's who's passed away now, but she had an anoxic brain injury at birth. And she was always impaired in her reasoning powers. She was permanently mentally handicapped because of that brain injury. So, all whom God has endowed with reasoning powers... May become intellectual Christians. God has given abundant evidence of the truth of his word, and he requires requires that those who would be counted as the followers of Christ should study the scriptures, that they may be able to give to every man a reason of the hope that is in them with meekness and fear. He has not required anyone to believe without evidence. Let the inquirer after truth put to the stretch his mental powers, in diligent study of the word of God. Do you stretch your mental powers? Have you ever been studying a concept? Uh, I can tell you I've done this. And I've had concepts that I have spent sometimes years stretching my mind, looking for truth and praying and reading and stretching. And then one day a light goes on, an epiphany. You ever had one of those epiphanies and the, and the pieces connect? and You go, wow, how beautiful is that? And then you go back and you maybe read some inspired writings and you say, it was there all along. I was just blind. I didn't come up with anything new. (laughs) You ever had that happen? (laughs) Yes. Weekly, yes. But you have to stretch the mind. You've got to reflect. You've got to reason. You've got to think. So what's required here in order to be able to do this? One, you have to have reasoning powers. You have to possess reasoning powers. Two, you've got to apply your reasoning powers. You've got to think. Do you know there's a lot of people with reasoning powers who don't like to think? I see them all the time. They're, they're the level four and below. They're the immature, the infants that, that talked about in Hebrews 5 that are still on milk and they're not on meat because they haven't trained themselves to discern. And a lot of kids, immature people, they don't want to. It's too hard. The problem is, too, just tell me the answer. Teacher, just tell me the answer. Just give it to me. What, what, what's the right answer? But oh, What's sad
5: with religious concepts, a lot of them are taught not to think. That's right. From thinking. You
0: and that's when it becomes really corrupt when the institutions themselves promote the concept that maturity is believing, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Faith is believing without evidence. Believe because, because it's, it, someone says so. That's not faith. And so yes, the institutions often tell people just believe, just have faith. But no, God wants us this way. He says, come, let us reason together. Everyone should be fully persuaded in their own mind, Paul says in Romans 14. We only get persuaded in our own mind as we reason it out for ourselves. So we have to have reasoning powers. We have to apply our reasoning powers. And we have to harmonize scripture with evidence. That's the integrative approach. Science and experience—they almost harmonized. One example: some people—and I was I just was reviewing some some, some criticisms. I, I read you a lot of emails that come in that are very positive. We don't always get only positive responses. <laughs> I don't bring in the others, okay? Well, I can tell you the positive responses are outweigh the negative responses eight to one, at least eight to one. Okay, so um, much more positive responses, but there are the occasion, and one of the ones I was reading uh, this morning, and I I popped it into the notes, I didn't put the whole quote in, but the idea was that I teach heresy because I deny the scripture, Proverbs 9.10, which says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the the Holy One is understanding, and the Bible clearly teaches we should live in fear of God, and I teach that we shouldn't live in fear of God, (laughs) and therefore I deny the scripture, and I can't be trusted. Well, It was a whole long diatribe about that. I quoted a scripture that this person quotes with an argument that the Bible says we should live the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We should live in fear. How do you now, and I say we shouldn't, before I give an answer that I give, discern it out for me. Weigh it out. Figure out which is the right answer here. What evidences do you go to? Yes, you started over here.
1: And that fear-based approach is what brought us to, which I'm sure most of us in the room will remember, uh, Sabbath morning. Okay, let's see a show of hands. How many articles of clothing did you hand out this week? How many articles of literature? Let's see. How many this? this
0: Who did your lesson every day for this week? Yeah. Remember that
1: one? Yes. Studied your lesson for every day, and what I was so coming so clear to me. It's what it is. It's bringing everything self-focused, my performance for God, out of fear. But once I get that God loves me totally and completely, then, by beholding, we become changed.
0: Yep. yep. Okay, you were going to say something. So how do you discern? Here's a practice for you guys to discern. There's a statement. Okay, go ahead. You
3: know, we talk about the different levels of understanding, and fear is part of what people operate on level one, level two. And that is the beginning of wisdom. Once they've got wisdom, then they can start to discern for themselves. Okay, so it's one way to look at it. Another way is is that I think the King James word for fear is different than the modern word for fear. Okay,
0: all right, I, I like where you're going. So he's got a couple of pieces of evidence we need to weigh out. Yes, Karen? What did the writers
2: say, what did they mean?
0: Okay, they were very clear in the articulate... Oh, the scripture writer, okay. What was said and what did they mean? So Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord. You guys can look it up in various translations. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. One potential meaning is that when you're worshiping a golden calf, having an orgy at Sinai, so chaotic and so loud that you can't even hear the movement of the Holy Spirit on your heart, and God thunders, which he did, and you become afraid and you stop the orgy... And you begin to listen. Wisdom has begun. But in that very context, Exodus 20, when they were all trembling in fear, Moses is standing there too and says, quote, there is no reason to be afraid. And put together... Oh, you uh, Go ahead.
3: When I was growing up, I was very fearful of getting up in front of the classroom and speaking what he's doing right now. And when I would get up, everything that I had memorized, everything that I had learned... It would go out the window. So how can I learn wisdom when I'm afraid?
0: Brilliant. Activating amygdala freezes prefrontal cortex. Fear impairs intellectual growth. I love that. Go ahead.
2: Along the lines that fear usually just means to have utter respect for. And um, just acknowledging his awesomeness, it goes back to the song, "'Twas grace that caused my heart to fear." But grace my fear relieved.
0: Oh, I like that. I like that. So, every time an angel appeared to one of God's prophets, their initial reaction was? No, no, the, the action of the prophets was? And the angel said? <laughs> okay, okay. Now, now, there's a text I hope you guys know. Everybody knows it. it's found in 1 John. It's about love, about perfect love. Okay, think that through. Wait, if we're to be in terror and dread of God, and, and He got His love, and thus the closer we come to Him, we enter more and more into perfect love, but the perfect love is casting out fear, we got a problem. See, perfect love casts out fear, but it doesn't cast out what you were mentioning awe, admiration, overwhelming, uh, just frozen in just incredibleness. Okay? That it doesn't cast out. That grows deeper, but not terror, not dread. That kind of fear is a symptom of sin. Further evidences. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were? Afraid. Afraid. Fear is an infection of sin.
1: Respect grows as you come to know him.
0: Yes. So, reason it out. See, this is a good example of discernment, looking at the evidences, putting all the pieces together, which actually fits, which doesn't.
5: But understanding the natural law concepts and the way reality works is the most helpful thing when trying to discern. That's right. Because it is what it is. Yes. This is the way it works. So if you understand the law of liberty, the law of love, and things like that, then what... The
0: exactly. So in your relationships, you want somebody, you'd like them to love you. Because God is love and he wants us to love him. So you got somebody you love and you want the, to love you, so you go to them and threaten to kill them if they won't love you. <laughs> how will that work out you're going to make them afraid afraid not to love you You, i'm afraid not to love that person because if i don't they'll kill me you really can't love them can you if you're afraid of 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 not loving them because they'll kill you if you don't do you understand how you really can't love them and that's the tension that people at level four and below live under and that makes no sense at all so Sunday's paragraph also mentioned that there's an enemy that works with great stealth to keep the people from coming to a saving relation with Jesus. No question about that. But question for you, is Satan's most successful and stealthy method of keeping people from coming to a saving relation with Jesus Christ achieved through non-religious means? No. No. The stealthiest attacks come through religious channels. Any examples? I I don't have any examples in here. Because I've given too many over the years. I left just the question for the class. Any examples? (laughs) Yes.
3: Taliban, al-Qaeda, ISIS, these are all pseudo-religious
0: organizations that will kill people that don't believe the way they do. Okay. Is that stealthy?
3: It probably is in the Muslim world.
0: In the Muslim world? Okay, perhaps.
3: But the same can be said for those that have the Roman law construct too, because it's just as um, it's just as um, insidious. Insidious, yes, as as these other false religions.
0: So let's see if we, but
3: it's very prevalent in the Christian. World.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's see if we can I can unpack a stealthy one here from our next paragraph. It says, um, nevertheless we can we we can be powerful conduits who help people know the voice of Jesus he speaks through nature there we go i love that okay integrated approach even despite ravages of the fall providential circumstances working uh providential workings the influence of the holy spirit godly people and his word we as we ourselves come to know and obey that voice we can be guides to others as well the last thing we want to be as as Jesus once warned the blind leading the blind so that brought the question up blind leading the blind was Jesus referring to the blind leading the blind as the non-religious people blindly or, or the religious people? Religious leaders. Religious leaders, yes, that's what he was. The church leaders of his day. Now the question is, what made them blind? To what were they blind? How were they blind? What caused their blindness?
2: They had the mindset of a box like you were mentioning earlier and beyond that box, they were afraid to go, or they were intimidated, or they disdained that they didn't have all truth, so you are wrong if you're not fitting
0: in with my truth. So Matthew fifteen one through 14, I'm going to read to it, see if you can see the, the, the elements that blinded them, the blinders that they had on described in this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father and mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God. He is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right about you when he prophesied... These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do, do you know what the, uh, that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Really? Hmm. <laughs> he replied, every plant that the Heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, they both fall into the pit. Now, did Jesus exactly just reveal to you the blinders? What, what were the blinders? Anybody articulate the blinders here for these guys?
4: Yes. There had to be an underlying fear of Christ if he was recognized for who he said he was he would have brought down the Jewish economy because he's going to bring an end to the sacrificial system and it was a theocracy originally.
0: Can I intervene? Can can I interject something there? One interpretation, one fear that they had was that if they followed him, the Jewish economy would have collapsed. That's one impossibility. Through what law lens? Through what system? Through what method? On the other hand, Jesus said, I have not come to destroy the law, but to... So was there another possibility prophesied through many of the prophets of the Old Testament that had they followed Jesus, it would not have destroyed their economy, it would have blossomed their economy to be the light of the world, and they would have gotten much better? Is that another possibility? See, we say this a lot, we're taught this a lot, but that's only because they viewed it through the blinders, and and, and let's see if we can unpack, what are the blinders here they're viewing it through? Yes, I heard somebody mi- whisper it.
3: Want to maintain control. Okay. So they had, had to come through them to get to be part of it just
0: so one of their blinders were there's their own personal power selfishness. and selfishness in their own hearts for sure. Any other blinders that we heard here Some of mentioned tradition right? tradition tradition. yes, they had traditions now our tradition's bad in a, just enough sense traditions are tradition's bad. It depends on the tradition, right? So traditions, just as a word, is not a bad word, and there can be healthy traditions. But in this case, what made their traditions pro- blinders? What made the traditions blinders?
2: They were made up of men just randomly.
0: So notice if you look functionally. Yes, go ahead.
2: The traditions blinded them or prevented them from actually keeping God's law.
0: Yes, okay, so notice their traditions were arbitrary rules. Remember God's law? He's creator, designer, builder of the fabric of the cosmos. His laws are the protocols upon which reality is built. The honor your mother and father, law of love in action, self-sacrificial giving. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. Living in harmony with God's principles for life. That's God's design for things. Their rules, their traditions were breaking or or, or contravening the actual design protocols for life. That's what blinded them. They valued arbitrary rules. We can't build space, time, energy, matter, the protocols for relations. We can't do that. All human beings can do? Make up rules and threaten to punish people for breaking the rules. That's how they viewed God. That's how they viewed his law. That's how they viewed deviations from the, from the law that you must inflict punishments. This is why the woman called in an adultery. They wanted to stone. Jesus wanted to heal. He's operating in the law the, the laws of love protocols. And these are the big blinders that they that they were blind to. Monday's lesson, and by the way, those same blinders are on many religious leaders today. You can hear it all the time on, on, on everywhere. Um, lesson is about seeking the lost. What does it mean to seek the lost? And it says in the second paragraph, um, if you merely focus on praying for people to come, you are not following Jesus' method for winning souls. He mingled, socialized, and saw. In other words, you just pray, bring people to our church, bring people to our church, bring people to our church, and that's all you ever do. That's not Jesus' method. But I wanted to point out there, we were instructed to pray that God bring us something. Remember? We pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will bring more workers to the field. We are to pray that he bring more workers to the field. But the workers are to go out into the field for the harvest, you say? rather than praying that the harvest come in on its own. It's like a farmer praying that, I pray my barns will be full when I get up in the morning.
4: <laughs>
0: that, that, that's the problem. Yeah, that's not where, but we, are, we can pray for more workers to come to the field. Can you think of ways that we can be more effective in outreach, in taking this healing message to the field? And I mean that very seriously. Can you think of ways that, that Come and Reason Ministries is not yet engaged in, that can be more effective in taking this message to the world? And you don't have to think of it now, but if you do think of it, online listeners, you think it's not, hey, this, would be, this is a potential way that, that we could, could be more effective in taking this message, or send us an email. We'll look at that. One of the methods of our evangelism... And the way we've tended to approach it so far philosophically as, as our ministry is that we believe that we should teach people the truth about God, his design, his protocols, his character, his methods, and, and call them into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, to internalize Christ into their hearts. No longer I live, but Christ lives in me. Our ministry has not sought to call people to a specific worship facility or join a specific denomination, but has operated under the belief that God needs his true worshipers in every Byway, highway, denomination, organization, to be lights in those places, to witness to those places. Yeah. And we let the Holy Spirit direct individual people to where he wants them to take the light in the message rather than telling people that they have to come to this specific facility or specific denomination. What do you think about that approach? Is, is it reasonable or are we missing something?
4: It's taking existing structures that are out there and giving the opportunity for the message to infiltrate and soften the hearts and, and empower the people, they're already there to take it to another level. Rather right? than trying to just focus on building another structure. Was <coughs>
3: that the original design intent for the children of Israel? So so with that in
0: mind, um, I was impressed with the lesson putting this quote in Tuesday's lesson from um, Testimonies to the Church, Volume Six page 371, listen to this quote in light of this. The Lord does not now work to bring many souls into the truth because of the church members who have never been converted and those who were once converted but who have backslidden. What influence would these unconsecrated members have on new converts? Would they not make of no effect the God-given message which his people are to bear? (sighs) Do you understand what that says? That God isn't bringing some people into the denomination because if He brought them in, it would they would be damaged and their spiritual journey would be hurt by the unconverted people who would tell them all. Uh, you know, the, like the first person that in the email I read as we opened class, they they were under this burdensome religious construct that put the love of God to no effect in their life. So I think. You know, our approach is the approach. Let the Holy Spirit lead where He wants people to be, and but let's bring them to the knowledge of God and how He operates and, and lead them back to a love relation with Jesus Christ and applying His principles in their life.
2: I have a daughter that travels all over the world, and it's been really interesting hearing her impression of our churches around the world where she travels and how turned off she is by many of them because of the way they behave to the point where she wouldn't want to go back. And when you think of inviting people to a specific church you go to, do you cr- if you cringe at the thought of what somebody might do or say while they're there, so you're uh, on edge about inviting them, something is wrong with that church.
0: Yeah, well said.
4: Yes? I think a question that's, that is not bad for me to ask myself is, how many people do I know that aren't Adventists? Perhaps I need to put myself in a place where I'm going to run into some that aren't. you like to hang out with people like us.
0: I have personally known many beautiful, loving Christian people who have never come to an Adventist church. Many, many. In my associations at the American Social Christian Counselors, where, where our ministry is highly interactive with them, and I've spoken and lectured, I've met tens of thousands from around the world that are just loving, committed, self-sacrificial Christian people. And, and I am convinced that you don't, have to, you don't get to heaven by joining a, a specific organization. You get to heaven by experiencing Jesus Christ and being transformed into the inner person. Yes?
5: Cindy, i
1: suggest
2: this. The person who is transcribing Dr. Tim's Sabbath school lessons could provide them for the deaf, hard of hearing. The videos
1: could all be captioned. This is desperately needed.
0: We'll look at that. Yes.
1: What you were just saying your last statement also is the tendency of people, when they are with people that are wonderful Christian people or, you know, anyone not of their faith, is they think their purpose is to convert them to their faith rather than accepting and loving them and seeing that they are living godly lives where they're at. But it's it's the mentality that they're not okay if they don't belong
0: to and that's because the people who tend to do what you're saying are operating at level four and below under an imposed law construct, and they actually have fear. And somebody else's journey with Christ that doesn't practice the same rules that, that you practice, the Pharisees, they're not washing their hands, okay? That caused the Pharisees who were to feel threatened. If they're going to be okay with God, then, then it makes me insecure with what I'm doing. Maybe I'm not doing the right thing, and so we have to get everybody to do the right thing so that I can feel safe with me. And so there's, there's, there's this sense of we have to convert people to do, the, do it the same way we do so we can have more we're peace with ourselves.
1: And then what that also does is it gives the community the impression uh, that you don't truly really love them because you're only there That's
0: for them. right. That's right. So I, I'd like to unpack that more, but there's something in the lesson I want to get to in Wednesday's lesson. It says, uh, first paragraph, Wednesday's lesson. It says, uh, Jesus and his disciples healed people and then uh, turned their minds uh, to eternal issues. Uh, Evangelist Mark Finley reminds us that uh, not to introduce God to people is spiritual malpractice. Jesus' method of evangelism was to touch people at the points of the greatest need. This is medical missionary work. Christ was not content only to heal them physically and to do nothing. The goal was eternal life in Jesus. So with that in mind, how do you understand medical missionary work? And since we're, we're getting short on time, some, uh, some thoughts I want to unpack. I'm going to read this quote um, from Testimonies, Volume 6, 2, 288. Again and again, I have been instructed... When, you, when it starts out that way, what do you think? It's a okay. uh, do, who do you think was instructing her? Uh, Kellogg? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> so when she says again and again, I've been instructed, she's implying that God has given her some directions. That's what she's implying here. Again and again, I've been instructed that the medical missionary work is to bear the same relation to the work of the third angel's message that the arm and the hand bear to the body. Now, the third angel's message, be thinking about that, because I'm going to come back to you and ask you, what do you understand the third angel's message to be, after I finish the rest of this quote, so be processing. Under the direction of the divine head, they are to work unitedly in preparing the way for the coming of Christ. The right arm of the body of truth is to be constantly active, constantly at work, and God will strengthen it, but it is not to be made the body. At the same time, the body is not to say to the arm, I have no need of thee the body has, has need of the arm in order to do active, aggressive work. Both have their appointed work and each will suffer great loss if worked independently of the other. So, in other words, she's suggesting that in the gospel work, the medical missionary and the theology students, the medical students and the theology students should be taught together. And that's why we have Loma Linda in California in the seminary at Michigan. <laughs> Let's get them as far apart practically as we can.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah. Seriously, it was purposely separated by the leadership of the church in, in contradiction to this direction because they were afraid at, after Kellogg uh, and Kellogg's uh, sanitarium that, that the medical people had too much money, the doctors had too much money and too much power, and the theologians wanted to control the, the direction of theology taught in the system, and they wanted the doctors out of it. And so they separated them. They
2: still-
0: and they still do. That's why we're over here. <laughs> okay. Um, but there's truth here. Now, now, now.
5: <laughs>
0: Ellen White state the message that she had again and again. She'd been instructed that the medical missionaries with the right arm, that this message is coming from God, that that's how it's to work. What message is the medical missionary work to be a part of that is taken to the world? What we call the third angel's message. Which is what? What do you understand that to be? In, in the grand landscape, it is the final message that is to prepare the world for the second coming of Christ. That's the grand landscape. We'll get specific in a moment. But the, this is the message that says to the world, Christ is coming, get ready, and here's how you prepare. That's what the message is to be, okay? But as you break it down, here's, here's how I understand it. First angel. First angel. God is the creator, the designer, the builder. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the and, and we are to come back to the reality that his laws or the protocols upon which reality is based. And in that admiration and appreciation for him, in awe, fear God, in awe of him, we are to give him glory by revealing his character in our lives. Because the hour in earth's history has come for people to make a right judgment about him. Fear God, be in awe of him, give him glory, reveal his character in your life. For the hour of his judgment. Not the hour when he sits as a judicial magistrate. The hour in which people are finally going to have enough truth revealed that they can go, oh, God isn't like this, this dictator who I must fear. God is like Jesus and I can actually trust and love him. The hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth to see. Worship the designer and, and the one who builds reality. And then, that's the verse angel. The second The other churches and religions of the world are falling into a system of imperialism, a system of imposed law, a system of arbitrary rules, a system of legal theology in which you have a a Babylon-like punishing God who will kill you if you don't do what he says and it's a confused system of rules that make no sense and it's fallen, come out of her, my people.
2: And it uses the word adultery, which would mean you really should be belonging to your spouse but on the other hand, you're frolicking with
0: someone else. And the third angel, those who reject God, who is love, and His law of love, and prefer the beastly methods of human-imposed law constructs, and therefore mark themselves in their minds by believing and promoting methods of coercion, or mark themselves in their hands by the works and practices of the methods of coercion, will ultimately die of their terminal, unhealed, selfish condition. The third angel. God's universe does not work like human governments. It's beastly. That's the message we are to take to the world. God is creator, designer, and the medical ministry. So why is the right arm to be the medical message? Because the laws of health are design laws. Nothing reveals design law better on every human life that they can see it in reality than the laws of health. And how that when you violate the laws of health, you, re, you experience, you reap pain, suffering, and eventually death. And that when you violate the laws of health, the doctor does not have to have a tribunal present evidence, get testimony, and inflict punishments upon you.
2: If the brain is not kept healthy, how can you absorb?
0: The, the, and that, there you go. That's right, and so we we model and demonstrate reality, but it's only the right arm, not the actual gospel, because the plan of salvation is not simply healing your physiology. The plan of salvation is healing your character, healing your soul, restoring your heart. That's the gospel message, but it operates on the exact same principles as the laws of health. That's the message, and we have split those off. And we go and promote the law of health as a segue to say, see, now we have the right arbitrary rules. The Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience, and so we can prove to you that we have insight because we have the red leather books, and the red leather books told us to worship on the Sabbath, and that's the same person who gave us the health laws, and so we can be confident that's the right arbitrary law to keep, so you better keep this law, because if you don't, you're going to get the mark of the beast, and God's going to have to kill you in the end.
5: Happy Sabbath.
0: (laughs) Happy (laughs) Sabbath. Yes, Happy Sabbath. And that is exactly the corruption. We have just gone from design law, laws of health, back to an arbitrary imposed penal legal system, which is beastly. This is what the Jews did. They had the health message in their day. They had a health message. But, But what they did is they had the same arbitrary view of God's law, and so they wanted to stone him when he's healing people on Sabbath. And he even tried to point this out. You, you want to circumcise on Sabbath to keep the law of Moses, shouldn't we restore the whole person on Sabbath? No, let's stone you for that. You're breaking the rule. Arbitrary rules. Makes no sense, whatever. Well, we don't have time to get into Thursday's lesson. I encourage you to look at the notes because it's it's how do you find the balance? This is another practice for you to go home and discern between um, the passages where You are told to ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you on the one hand. And Jesus on the other hand saying, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens. Or the parable of the lost sheep where we're the ones lost being sought. So on the one hand you're being told you need to seek. And when you seek me with your whole heart you'll find me. On the other hand he's seeking after us because we're lost. Where's the balance between those two? Who's doing the seeking? How's that work? How do you find the harmony? Gracious Father in heaven. We love you, and we're so thankful that you are a God who's given us reasoning powers, given us liberty, given us freedom, who operates your universal love, who's presented the truth over and over and over again and invites us to be intellectual Christians, people who understand your methods and purposes and participate intelligently with you. We ask that your spirit will make our hearts sensitive, uh, sensitive to the truth, that we may grow and advance in the truth and not get caught in boxes of our own making and that our characters will be transformed to be like you, that we may be really bright lights at the end of time, taking this final message to the world so that people can make a right judgment about you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.